Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Perke Avot. Uh, very exciting that we continue with the Mishnah talking about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. We already spoke last week about Rabbi Judah the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, seventh generation from Hillel, this foundational figure who recorded the Mishnah. And to hear wisdom, to hear advice, ethical advice, Jewish advice from this foundational figure, it's it's so important. You know, one of the, I find one of the great things about Pirkei Avot is the lesson, maybe the most important lesson of all that it teaches us, is that a rabbi isn't just there to tell you this chicken is kosher, this chicken is treif. Uh, this is the way things should be done, this is the way things shouldn't be done, in terms of how we keep a halacha. You know, for that, we can ask, you know, I've referred to it before as Rabbi Google, right? We don't need to ask a rabbi, because you don't watch Google as to how Google behaves. How does Google react when Google gets a shock? I've got no idea. You know why? Because Google never gets a shock. How does a rabbi behave when they get a shock, when they get a piece of good news, or when they see somebody who's in need? That's a lesson, that's an important lesson, because here's a person who's a scholar, who knows so much about the world of halacha, the world of Torah, and they are a Google. A true scholar is a Google, right? Because you can ask them any question. Where does it say this in the Talmud? I mean, you know, almost not a day goes past when uh, I don't get a message from somebody. Where can I find this? Or where is this piece of information? Where can I look for that? And invariably, I know the answer. Sometimes I don't, and I have to Google it myself, or look at the various reference books that I have in order to find the answer. But that's just scholar scholarship, right? It's just information that I have to... By the way, the, the greatest quality of scholarship is not that they, a scholar knows everything, but that they know where to look. So a rabbi is a scholar, okay, I mean, Google will always be a greater scholar, in a sense. It's the sen sensitivity of a rabbi. It's the personality of a rabbi, it's the behavior of a rabbi that truly says who they are, that is truly going to uh, convey to you what it means to be a great Torah scholar and a really decent human being, as God wants you to be. You know, I'm, I'm learning every morning now in the middle of uh, Elul, we learn Hilchas Tshuva. And you see, you know, this morning we learned the Halacha, that there's no use... It's in Perik Base, the beginning of Perik Base of, of Hilchus Tshuva of the Rambam. It's no use to do Tshuva and to have a wonderful relationship with God if you don't know how to relate to other human beings. It's no use at all. Imagine you did Navera, you stole money from somebody. I, I'm obviously present company excluded. I'm not talking to any of the people who are listening to this year. But you stole money from somebody. Unfortunately, you had a, a, a weak moment. And suddenly that person's money or that person's asset is in your possession, not in theirs. And now you want to do Teshuvah. You realize you did a great Avera. And you want to do Teshuvah. And you go and you're very sorry. You realize you should never have done it. You got yourself into that situation. You should never have done it. You realize how wrong it was. And you promised yourself you're never going to do it again. You come to Shul on Yom Kippur. Shamnu, Bagadnu. Gazalnu, Gazalnu, Gazalnu. You bang a few times. Gazalnu, Gazalnu, Gazalnu. Do you think that shiva works? 
What do you think Hashem thinks of that tshuva? What's the first question Hashem is going to ask you? By the way, this is a chazal. What do you think the first question is that Hashem asks you when you get to Shomayim? Did you conduct yourself honestly in business? Ah, now that's a question, right? That's an important question. Did you conduct yourself honestly in business? Now imagine you say, Gazalnu, oh, you cry, tears rolling down your face. Gazalnu, I stole. We stole. Now Hashem is going to ask you, uh, excuse me, how much money did you steal? Uh, I stole $172.13. Where's that money? Is it in your pocket? Is it in your bank account? Or is it in that fellow you stole it from's bank account? Uh, 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 it's in my bank account. What do you think Hashem's going to say? Do you think he's interested in your tshuva? This is what the Rambam says. Do you think he's interested in your tshuva? He's not interested in seeing, seeing how sorry you are, crying, Gazalnu Yom Kippur, I'm so sorry, Hashem. He's not interested. Do you know why? Because that money's still in your bank account. It's still in your pocket. When you've given the money back to that person and you've said to him, I did something wrong to you and I'm very sorry for it and I'll never do it again and, you, and I'll understand if you don't trust me, but you should know I'm a trustworthy person. I can, will never do anything like that again. I'll never be dishonest with you again. Then you can go to Hashem and say, Oshamnu, Gazalnu. That's when you can say it. Until then, don't bother. What is that? What's the Rambam teaching us? That it's not just about a relationship with God. God planted us in a sea of humanity. There are other human beings living in our vicinity. By the way, not all those human beings are such wonderful people. Sometimes they wrong us. Sometimes they do things which make us upset. Sometimes they do things which we need to criticize. But we live in a sea of humanity. It's that sea of humanity which matters. It's not our relationship with God. We don't live in isolation. We don't live in monasteries. We're not Benedictine monks. We don't live in a world of complete isolation. We live in a real world with real people, with real problems and real challenges. And we make real mistakes. Now, a rabbi, a teacher, is not somebody who tells you this is right and this is wrong in terms of this is the law. And if you didn't do it properly, you went against the law. No, that's not a rabbi. A rabbi is in terms of how do they behave? What advice do they have for you to make sure that you're behaving well because you want to emulate the behavior that God expects from you. Behavior, this is what Pirkei Avot is about, your ethics, your attitude, your approach to life is sometimes much more important in terms of determining what you're going to be like as a good Jew than whether or not your titsis are kosher and whether you go to the right butcher shop and whether or not you're a member of the right shul. As strange as it sounds, that's what's important. And that's really um, Rabbi Yehuda Hanossi in putting together, by the way, he's the one that did it. Rabbi Yehuda Hanossi, whose Mishnah we're quoting now, is the one that did this. He wrote Mishnais. Mishnais is really a record of all the halachas of the Torah, of Torah Shabbat Peh. The oral law that accompanied the written law that was given by Moshe Rabbeinu in the five books of Moses. But he realized it's not enough. It's not sufficient. It's not equal to the task 
if all we do is tell somebody, you're Tomei, you're Tohar. This is kosher, this isn't kosher. This is what you should do on Shabbos, and this is what is prohibited on Shabbos. That's not enough. It's never going to be sufficient. Because what is your attitude towards mitzvahs? What is your attitude towards Hashem? What is your attitude towards the fact that you were born into this world, which isn't a perfect place by any means, by any stretch of the imagination? What is your attitude towards the human beings among whom you live? What is your attitude? How should you behave? What is your approach? That is so important. Now let's see what Rebbe says. Listen carefully. Vehevei zohir b'mitzvah kala k'bachamura. You must be as careful with a mitzvah kala. What's a mitzvah kala? Do you know what the word kala means? The word kala means weak, simple, easy. That's the way I would normally translate it. But k'bachamura, what's a chamura? Chamura means strict, difficult, challenging. And he says, You should be as careful, as diligent with a mitzvah kala as you are with a chamura. I'm going to come back because it's so um, easy to misdefine kala and to misdefine chamura. And I'm not happy with the translations I've given you. That's the normal way we translate it, but you're going to see it's a little bit deeper than that. It's a bit more involved. I'm going to look at that in a moment. But let's see what, how he continues. Why? You don't know the reward that is due to you for a mitzvah. You've got no idea of the value of a mitzvah. I want to tell you something. I'm a collector of antiques, of antiquarian books. And I come up against two very important facts. Whenever I deal with books, people come to me and they say to me, um, Pinny, could you value my book collection for me? And I go around to the house and I look at their book collection. They've got a bunch of old books, maybe manuscripts. And they ask me, what's this worth? What's that worth? And I've noticed two very important things. The first is that Many people overvalue their books. They think that because something was published in 1821, it must be worth half a million dollars. I want to tell you, it's highly unlikely that just because something is old, that it's worth money. Just like every other sphere of the economic world, the economics of antique objects are determined by supply and demand. It's the first rule of economics determined by supply and demand. You can have a book from 1821 that nobody wants. It may be the only such book in the world, but nobody wants it. Nobody's interested in it. Nobody cares about it. Therefore, even though there's very low supply, if there's no demand, who cares? Because nobody's going to buy it. It has no value. So if somebody tells me, I've got this book, it's from 1821, it must be worth a fortune. I'll tell them, I'm sorry to tell you, if you put that on auction, you'd be lucky to get $50. In fact, you'd be lucky if the auction house even takes it. Why? Because they don't want to take a book and list it in their catalogue if it's not going to make them any money. They're also in business to make money, not just you. Or you can have a book, the first edition of Harry Potter. When, was Harry, when did Harry Potter first come out? 
I don't know exactly, late 90s, 2000, the first edition of Harry Potter is worth tens of thousands, maybe more than $100,000. Why? Because it was a very small run of books. Nobody knew that Harry Potter would go on to become one of the most amazing, most successful um, uh, um, uh, series of novels ever published. And therefore, if you find an edition, what are you talking about? It's only 20 years old. Why is it worth so much money? Supply and demand. There's a low supply, but here the demand is very, very high. Now, you, as somebody who's looking at that book, if you're not an expert, imagine you've never heard of Harry Potter, and you see a book that was published 20 years ago, and you look at it, you don't even realise it's a first edition, and somebody comes to you and says, uh, is that a first edition Harry Potter? How much did you pay for it? I paid $19.95. I'll give you $100 for it. <laughs> you think to yourself, it's amazing. $100? Harry Potter? I paid $19.95 for it. $20? It's five times the value. I've made good money on it. Now, you don't know that the fellow who offered you $100 is now going to sell it on auction for $100,000. That's what happens. Because you don't know the matan sechoron of this particular object. Or you can have that book from 1821 and somebody comes to you and says to you, um, I'd like to uh, buy this book from you. How much are you willing to pay? The fellow says to you, I'm willing to pay you $100. $100? Are you kidding me? This is worth $1,000. It's from 1821. It's worth a fortune. And the fellow says, no, no, truthfully, it's not worth $50. I'm willing to give you $100 because I have a set and it will fit in that set. If you don't sell it to me for $100, I'll pay you $120. $1,000 I'm never going to pay you. Why not? Because it's not worth it. It's not worth that money. You don't know. You, the seller, have no idea of the matan scharon of that particular object. Now, let's go back to Rebbe. Okay, that's how we started, right? I wasn't here to talk to you about the antiquarian book business. I was here to talk to you. I came on this to talk to you about Rebbe and what Rebbe has to say. There's a mitzvah kala and a mitzvah chamura. I told you, I haven't defined that yet. You don't know the matan sechoron of that mitzvah, of any mitzvah. How much is keeping Shabbos worth? How much is eating kosher worth? How much is worth if you see a little old lady or a little old man and he can't lift up his shopping from the shopping cart and you help that person put the shopping from the shopping cart into the trunk of his car, or as we say in England, the boot. How much is that worth? Is it worth more or less than keeping Shabbos? Do you know? Have you got any idea? Is there a scale? Is there a book that you can buy, an almanac, that's going to tell you exactly how much each mitzvah is worth? doesn't exist. There is no such almanac. That's what Rebbe is telling you. There's no information. In fact, there's only two mitzvahs in the Torah. Are you listening to this? Two mitzvahs in the, out of 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, where we have any concept of what you're going to get in return for those mitzvahs. And there's one thing that you're going to get. yomim. Arichas Yomim, you're going to have a long life, even that's not quite sure what Arichas Yomim means, because people can die young and have Arichas Yomim. That's a sheer perhaps for another time. What are those two mitzvahs? Kibud of Vaim, respecting and honoring your parents. It says in the Aseras Hadibrois, you'll have Arichas Yomim. 
And also, listen to this one, if you find a nest, it's in Parshaski Tete. We read it last week. If you find a nest in your garden and there's a little bird sitting on its eggs, or there's a bunch of chicks in the nest, you send the mother bird away and you harvest the eggs or the chicks. It's called Shlechakan or Shlechakain, to be honest. That's the proper translation. You know, there's a Mishnah, a Mishnah in Mishnah is called Kainim or Kinim, right? But you shaleach to shalach esakan, right? You you send away the bird. That will result in arichas yomim. Those two mitzvahs in the Torah are the only ones where we know the matan schoron shal mitzvah. By the way, we only know part of it because there's matan schoron that we've no, we don't know anything about, which is the matan schoron of the mitzvah in shamayim that we don't know. We've got no concept of it. But those are the only two mitzvahs out of 613 where we have any indication of what you're going to get in return. What do you get for keeping Shabbos? Is there a checklist here that we could look at? If you keep Shabbos, um, you know, properly, very, very well, you're going to get X. If you keep it not so well, you're going to get Y. If you eat kosher, if you eat glut kosher, you're going to get this. If you don't eat glut kosher, but you eat kosher, you're going to get that. If you don't eat kosher, there's no such list. We can't refer to such a list. So because you don't know the value of a mitzvah, don't tell me that the way you keep a mitzvah or what mitzvah you keep is more important than the mitzvah I keep. Some mitzvahs that one person keeps... They keep it so well that they're going to get a matan schar that's much better than you keep many more mitzvahs, but you didn't think about it. And now we come back to this definition idea of a kala and a chamura. I, wanted to, I want to ask you a question. Would you say murder, if you didn't murder somebody, that's an amazing thing. Of course, what are you talking about? Murder is a terrible thing. I didn't murder. That surely is a mitzvah chamura, right? So... I'm going to tell you, I never murdered anybody, and therefore, I get the biggest reward in Shamayim because I'm not a murderer. It's a chamura, right? For sure it's a chamura. I only ever ate glut kosher. I had many opportunities to eat non-glut kosher. It's both kosher food, some, you know, because glut is just... A, by the way, if you have... Do you know what glut means? Glut means that the lung doesn't have any damage to it. So if you have damage to the lung, you can go to the rabbi and you can ask him whether or not the lung is still kosher, despite the fact that there's certain aspects of the lung that have questions as to whether it's kosher. He then says it's kosher. It's not glut, but it's kosher. I always ate glut meat. I never, if there was any shyla on the lung, I never ate that meat. Ah, you're gonna say, oh wow. That for sure is a chamura, right? Maybe not. How do you know? What's the difference? Where are you, where are you drawing your comparisons from? How about helping that uh, lady or uh, gentleman in the parking lot with their shopping that they can put it in the trunk? How about that mitzvah? Is that a chamura or is it a kalo? 
Oh, it's a color, a big deal. If I did help, I didn't help. I needed to rush home. I had to catch an appointment. I have a phone call to make. I've got other things to do. My back hurts. I didn't sleep well. I'm tired. It's a color, big deal. Who cares? What are you talking about? What do you know? I want to tell you something. The fact that I've never murdered anybody is not a big deal. It's, I'm telling you, it could very well be a mitzvah color. Why? Because I don't have inclination to murder anybody. And even if I did, the means are not there. And even if I had the means, I'm frightened of the police because if the police catch me, I'm going to either go um, on death row or I'm going to be in jail for the rest of my life. That, my friends, is a mitzvah color because the decision that I need to make as to whether or not to murder somebody is not a decision that I'm ever going to make because obviously I'm never going to be a murderer. In which case, it's a mitzvah color. So I'm going to come to Shemaim and God is going to say to me, did you keep all my mitzvahs chamurois? I'm going to say, of course. I never murdered anybody. I'm not a murderer. Ah, so you think you kept a mitzvah chamura? Nah, you don't get much matan schar for that. Why not? Because it's a mitzvah color. And you made a miscalculation. You thought it was a mitzvah chamura. Rabbi says, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Not being a murderer is a mitzvah kala. And you thought it's a mitzvah chamura. Meanwhile, helping the guy in the parking lot who can't put the shopping in the trunk of his car, that's a mitzvah chamura. Do you know why? Because you have no inclination to do it. And every time you had that opportunity, you didn't do it. You didn't help the guy. You didn't help the lady. You didn't open the door for the person who finds it hard to pull open a heavy door. You didn't say good morning to the guy and enliven his life or her life by cheering them up, by saying hello and saying how are you and engaging with them and conversing with them. That's a mitzvah chamura. Do you know why? Because the barrier to entry is much higher for you because you have no interest in engaging with a person you don't know and don't care about. Because who cares is what you think to yourself. Ah, that's a mitzvah chamura. I'm just giving you an idea. It's a backdrop. I'm not telling you that's exactly what Rebbe meant. But he said very, very clearly, You have no concept what a mitzvah is worth. You're making it up as you go along. You've decided that if you daven in your particular shul and send your kids to a particular school and behave in a particular way, that you are a person who only keeps mitzvahs chamurais. And all the mitzvahs you don't keep, a mitzvah is kalois. Uh-uh. Don't imagine that you have found that perfect line. You know, every Jew I've ever met, this is a fact, you can quote me on it. Maybe I should make this my strap line. Every Jew I have ever met, whoever is stricter in their observance than them, they think is a fanatic, a lunatic, right? Whoever keeps less mitzvahs than them, <laughs> he's a goy, he's a shigetz. Right? It's a fact. That's what people think. My way, I found the perfect middle ground. I'm perfect. I found the exact way how to observe mitzvahs. That's what Rebbe's talking about. You think you know what a mitzvah kala is and a mitzvah chamura. No, no. For what you think is a mitzvah chamura for you, that's the easy one. I once told somebody who told me, I've never eaten treif in my life. I said, yeah, it would be a very big deal if you ate treif. Do you know why? Because you've got piss, you've got a beard, you've got a big black yarmulke. Imagine you walked into McDonald's and said, excuse me, I'd like a cheeseburger. And somebody walked past. Do you think that's possible? 
That's a mitzvah color for you. Because you're never going to walk into McDonald's and order a cheeseburger. Do you know what the mitzvah chamura is for that person? For that person, it's not to speak Losh and Hara. That's the mitzvah chamura for them. Because that's the tough one. Because they get to shul, and the first thing they do is, have you heard a bit of Losh and Hara? Do you want to tell me? You want to share some Losh and Hara with me? That's a mitzvah chamura for them. Then you've got people at the other end of the, of the spectrum. For them, eating a cheeseburger is not a big deal. They, ah, it's not important. Those are ancient ritual laws. We don't care too much about them. What's the big deal? It's only because they didn't want people to get sick because they mixed meat and milk and there was different reasons. Hygiene, that's why. Uh, that's a mitzvah chamura for them. Because they walk into McDonald's, they order the cheeseburger. They think it's simple. It's not a big deal. By the way, they've never spoken Lashon Hara in their lives. Never in their lives have they ever said anything bad about anybody. And they always help people in the parking lot. So for them, that's a mitzvah color because that comes to them by their nature. That's what Rebbe's saying. That's why he doesn't identify those mitzvahs. I can't identify them for you. I can identify for myself based on those criteria what is a mitzvah color and what is a mitzvah chamura. For myself. And you for yourself can do exactly the same thing. You can work out what are those mitzvahs which are easy for you to keep because you wouldn't be seen dead not keeping them. That's a mitzvah color for you. What's a mitzvah chamura for you? The ones that you find it really tough keeping. Ah, we were talking about Hilchus Tshuva before. Have you ever said sorry to someone, but really meant it? Not just said sorry because you know that's what you have to do. You didn't say sorry? You didn't ask someone for Mechila before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Ah, I just found a mitzvah chamura. That's a mitzvah chamura. Says Rebbe, listen carefully. Vehevei zohir mitzvah kala b'chamura. Imagine that every mitzvah kala that you think is a mitzvah kala and a mitzvah chamura that you think is a mitzvah chamura, treat them equally. Make sure that whatever you think is so important, you treat the ones that you think are less important as importantly as the ones you think are important. Do you know why? He says, he explains it. Because your definition of mitzvahs is askew. It's not correct. You think that the ones you think are chamura are chamura and the ones you think are kala are kala. And in fact, the reverse is the, is the case. The ones that you think are chamura are kala and the ones that you think are kala are chamura. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you so much.